We are continuing in uh, this little two-part series, How Great Is Our God, and we're going to be reading again from Psalm 145. I'd like us to read these verses responsively. So we read 1 through 7 of Psalm 145 last week, and now we're reading verse 8 to the end of the chapter. And if you were here last week, you you know uh, exactly what's going on. The first seven verses tend to focus on the incommunicable attributes of God, not exclusively, but we have more of God's incommunicable attributes, and eight and beyond uh, more of a focus on his communicable attributes. And if you weren't here last week, that's just fine, because we're going to continue the conversation uh, from Belgian Confession, Article 1. What I'd like us to do with Psalm 145 is have the guys read verse 8, and then the women, 9, and so on. So guys, we're going to start out. So this is God's holy and infallible word. Guys, please join me in verse 8 as we start out. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And together, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. So the Belgic Confession um, is the oldest of, of our, the three forms of unity, our confessions. And it's called what it is because it originated in Belgium. Belgian waffles, Belgian ale, but Belgic confession. I don't know why it's that way, but it is. The author, Guido de Bray, uh, wrote it for the church, but also for the Spanish king, Philip II. And as we start out tonight and end, I'm going to talk just a little bit more than I did last week about Guido, Guy, Guy, um, and his life and his death, because I think it really applies to what we're talking about and the significance of what we're studying. So, under Philip II, the Spanish Empire, so this is mid-1500s, 
the Spanish Empire around the world reached its absolute height. He was king over territories on every continent. In fact, the Philippines, that country, the Philippines were or was, I don't know, it's a plural country, but named after King Philip because he ruled, the Spanish Empire ruled over the Philippines. The lowlands, so like today's Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, where the Reformation had really taken hold, were under Spanish control. And he was Catholic. And in those days, that was an issue. Um, The Catholics weren't too fond of those who had broken away at the time of the Reformation. It caused wars. So, Debray wanted to show Philip that the Reformed folks weren't crazy people. He wanted to show them and convince them that their beliefs were founded on the Bible. And how can you argue with this? It's straight from the Bible. Um, And so he produced this confession that the Synod of Dort later affirmed and owned to be a confession of the Reformed churches, you know, summarizing what he and other Calvinists believed about the Bible. In 1561, when it was published, he actually threw a copy over a castle wall to be sure that the Spanish authorities got it. And we believe it actually did reach Philip II. I don't know if he read it, but we are quite sure he received it. But the Spanish authorities were not convinced, and eventually they arrested Debray, and then the Spanish Inquisition, you read about the Inquisition in school, I'm sure, Uh, the Spanish Inquisition put him on trial and hung him in 1567, six years after the confession was published. He died in front of a very large crowd, and as that crowd gathered, he spoke with authority and passion about his faith to everybody so that they knew that what he believed and why. And in the middle of that speech, the hangman pushed him off the scaffold and silenced him, and he died. And, and so I, I don't know exactly what you think of exactly when you think of our confessions, but I feel like it's important for us to know and have a sense of the fact that people were willing to die for the faith that has been handed down to us, and in fact did die, were martyred and persecuted. So with that in mind, like I said, we're going to come back to that. Um, We noted last week how the Heidelberg Catechism that we're super familiar with starts more with us and then brings us to God, and how John Calvin says the knowledge of humankind and the knowledge of God are linked. You can't separate them, and and so you can start with either one and get to the other, and and I, I think, too, with this sermon series about God in our day, right, we read in the news, it's all about people's identity, what gender they feel they are, people figuring uh, themselves out, but we can't know ourselves without knowing God. Again, there's the link between the knowledge of us and the knowledge of God. 
Without knowing God, any attempt that people make to know themselves is going to fail. It's going to be guesswork. It's going to be false. It's going to be fake. In the knowledge of our Creator, that's the only way that we'll figure out what makes us tick. And that's how this confession, the Belgic Confession, starts. Article 1, with God. So we saw three attributes, characteristics of God last week, those incommunicable ones, simplicity, eternity, infinity, and now we're turning to three communicable attributes. In other words, three attributes of God that we share to a certain extent as his image bears, because there's not only a a creator-creature distinction that the incommunicable attributes show us, but there's a creator-creature relationship. Article 1 talks about God as wise, just, and good. I just want to spend a little bit of time in each one of those. Wisdom, first of all. J.I. Packer writes, wisdom, what is wisdom? J.I. Packer says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. God is perfectly wise. He's perfectly all that he is. And so that means that God always makes the right decisions and he uses the very best ways to accomplish his decisions. In other words, God makes no mistakes, right? And and some of you uh, maybe remember, I don't, this is before my ta- time, but I, there was a TV show, I think in the 50s, called Father Knows Best. Well, wisdom tells us that God our Father truly does know best. And as Paul says in Romans 11, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And Romans concludes with, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Because it's in the nature of these types of attributes, people, human beings are capable of wisdom too. And someone once said this, a wise man learns by the experience of others. An ordinary man, a regular guy, learns by his own experience. A fool learns by nobody's experience. But, but we know we could add to that that the wisest people of all will have their wisdom informed by God's word, right? Just a couple little takeaways from this. One, since we know that all things are ruled in the world and in history and come to pass by a perfect wisdom, we should be very cautious never to speak poorly of any of God's works or plans or decisions. Second, we should be eager to seek wisdom, like Solomon, knowing that we'll find it, especially in God's word. Third, any wisdom that we do happen to have as people We need to be very modest about, not prideful, not patting ourselves on the back or praising ourselves, but instead give all the glory and praise to God, who's the author of wisdom, knowing that we've got none without it coming from him. And then one other little takeaway, a fourth one. This doctrine's a comfort to us, too. If we're going through hard times 
or if we just don't know what's around the corner in life, or we're a little bit stuck, we don't know what to do next in life. The fact that he's all wise means he always knows a way out for us if we're in trouble. And he knows what's best for us and what's best next for us. And through prayer and the word, we can discern that and, and hear from the Lord and, and help us move forward. Justice. God is just. And as someone once put it, this means that he is fair, he's impartial. It means that he hates lying and cheating and any, any mistreatment of his creatures. The fact that God is just means that he can and he will judge between right and wrong and he administers justice in accordance with his standards. The Bible says that one day he's going to judge the world. So we're familiar with the idea of justice. We're also familiar with the idea that justice and judges on earth can be flawed. Right? Some judges are actually corrupt. And even if their intentions are good, they can make mistakes. And this makes some Christians question, even if, in principle, the death penalty, right? This is just a little example. In principle, the death penalty seems to be taught in Scripture. But how does that work in real life, where there are some corrupt, where the justice system, run by humans, is not perfect? And so we wonder about that. Is that the right thing to do if there are judges who are corrupt, if the justice system can make mistakes, and then we do that final thing? But all that aside, God administers justice perfectly, right? couple takeaways. Sometimes we wonder about evil and sin in the world and how people seem to live like the devil and they get away with it and they're just fine. And we think about wrongs that are done to ourselves and we want revenge. But what we need to do, if we have a just cause, we need to give it over to the just Lord who will mete out perfect justice. And that gives us a great hope that no matter what's happening around us in your life in this world, one day all wrongs and evils will be rightly taken care of by God the judge. Another takeaway is that, of course, as God's image bearers, we want to be seeking justice in the land, in our communities. And a third, anyone can be comforted by the fact that though we have also done evil, God paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And in Jesus' sacrificial death, God's justice was satisfied. And if we believe in Jesus... Our sins are taken care of because of God's justice. Goodness, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward people. You wonder, you know, we're talking about the attributes of God. It's interesting, I don't know if you thought of this, but when you read Article 1, there's nothing there about God's love. Like we read in 1 John 4, God is love. That's clearly a major attribute of God. Or grace, 
or mercy, but the fact is that goodness, this attribute, includes stuff like love, grace, and mercy. Goodness is kind of the broader category for these other important attributes that we might talk about a little bit more than goodness. But goodness is the main one. Goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty and gruffness and severity and mercilessness. All those sinful emotions can be found in us sometimes, but none of those are ever found in our God. And from this goodness, he's good in himself. But from and flowing out, you notice the article said he's the overflowing fountain of good. So that goodness comes out for him to us and gives him an inclination to bless his creatures. And the Bible talks about a general goodness toward everybody in all creation. Psalm 145 that we read, the Lord is good to all. Matthew 5, 45, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. But there's also a special goodness for his children. Lamentations 3, 25, the Lord is good to those that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. So for the special goodness to his children, it's a forgiving goodness goodness, a gracious goodness, a saving good. And his goodness is why even you and me, after sinning, were motivated to return to the Lord instead of running away. Well, why is that? It's because we know that he's a good God, and he's loving and merciful. Because of his goodness, we turn to him when we sin. So God is wise, just, good, and These communicable attributes tell us that any notion of a very far away God only, that's not a true picture of God. He is far away and distant from us like the Muslims seem to picture Allah, but we also can have a relationship with him. So a true notion of God remembers Again, there are no distinctions in God. We talk about all these little things for our puny little minds. But a true notion of God keeps in mind his transcendence, the incommunicable attributes, the fact that he is God and we are not. We're distinct. He's apart. But also that he is imminent. He's close to us and has a relationship with us, his creatures. I want us to think just a little bit more as we conclude, and it's not like it's a conclusion we're going to be done in 30 seconds. We've got a a little bit more than that yet. But I want us to think about what these biblical truths mean to us. The doctrine of God, definitely, as well as all the other biblical topics in the Belgic Confession. And and I want us to think about how much do we value God's truth? And, and, and what, what are we willing to give up for the truth, right? Considering that Debray and many others were willing to die for the Reformed faith, and they did. So I want us to hear just a little bit more of what Debray went through for the faith 
and God gave him strength to go through. And, and, and just think about whether we can or should value or could value a bit more of, of, of this word than maybe we already do. After the authorities arrested Debray, he spent the first part of his captivity in a prison where he could receive visitors. By far the majority of the visitors that came, came in to mock him. And they were taunting him. They were enemies. Uh, and, but just like the Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, we read in Philippians 1, that that imprisonment became an occasion for him to witness and to share the gospel. Uh, once a princess with many young court ladies came in to taunt him and mock him, and the princess said just in total horror uh, at Guido's heavy chains in the situation he was in, she said, Mr. Debray, I don't see how you can eat, drink, or sleep that way. I think I would die of fear if I were in your place. And the fact is, I, I feel like I may as also, I probably would. But this is what Guido responded with. My lady, the good cause for which I suffer and the good conscience God has given me make my bread sweeter and my sleep sounder than those of my persecutors. Then still responding to the princess, he said, it is guilt that makes a chain heavy. Innocence makes my chains light. I glory in them as my badges of honor. Quite a guy. Next, Guido was transferred to a much worse prison. Dark, cold, damp, rat-infested dungeon. It was known commonly as the Black Hole. And in spite of the cold and the circumstances, his hunger, uh, the horrors he saw there and was part of, he wrote a little booklet on the Lord's Supper, and he wrote letters to his friends, his elderly mother, and his wife. And the letter to his wife is what I want to read to you because I, I feel like it's quite touching. So he wrote this. He knew he was what, where things were headed. He wrote this just about a month before his hanging. My dear and well-beloved wife in our Lord Jesus, your grief and anguish are the cause of my writing you this letter. I most earnestly pray you not to be grieved beyond measure. We knew when we married that we might not have many years together, and the Lord has graciously given us seven. He was like in his mid-40s when he died. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he could have easily caused it to be so. But such was not his pleasure. Let his good will be done. Moreover, consider that I have not fallen into the hands of my enemies by chance, but by the providence of God. All these considerations have made my heart glad and peaceful. And I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to be glad with me and to thank the good God for what he is doing, for he does nothing but what is altogether good and right. I pray you then to be comforted in the Lord, to commit yourself and your affairs to him. He is the husband of the widow and the father of the fatherless. He will never leave you or forsake you. Goodbye, Catherine, my well-beloved. I pray, my God, to comfort you and give you resignation to his holy will, your faithful husband, Guido Debray. A month later, he was killed 
His body was left hanging the rest of the day. They buried him in a shallow grave where dogs and wild animals dug up his body and ate it. I'm kind of embarrassed to imagine how I might respond in similar circumstances, but the knowledge of of who God is and the knowledge of that he had in the truth of God's word, it gave this guy supernatural strength and comfort. And may God make our faith in his truth and love for his word stronger, like that of faithful men and women in the past, so that uh, we and our children and grandchildren, so that we'll be prepared, I don't think for if persecution comes, but when it does come, to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for men and women of faith in years past that can encourage us. We ask your forgiveness when we cling lightly to your truth and to your word. Help um, this confession that was written by a child of yours under much duress. Help it to encourage us as as we know your word better and, and, and seek to own it and have it in our hearts and lives and and be able to pass it along to our family so that Lord our faith might be strong when we're tested. And that of our children and, and grandchildren and On through the generations, we pray for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are a good, good father, O God. And hear our prayer in your son's name. Amen.